Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Josh Havman, and I am the executive pastor here at Grace. And uh, if you are used to coming to Grace and seeing Brooke Simpson and you think, I don't look like him, that's, that's correct. I do not. And uh, if you've missed a couple of weeks, you may have also missed that Brooks has gone on sabbatical. Um, he will be back in a couple of months. So you will continue to see people who do not look like Brooks for a few weeks, just so there's no confusion there. We are in a series uh, in Philippians called Identity, Recovering Our True Selves. And this morning we're going to talk about an aspect of our identity, um, a part of our identity, which is our citizenship. And if you just uh, if you're paying attention, as Peter read from the scripture just now, you did not hear the word citizenship. You didn't hear him say anything about that. So I have some explaining to do, and I will get there in a minute. But before I do, I'm actually going to go back. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 of Philippians. Don't worry, you don't have to stand up again. You can just sit here and listen. But I'm going to do this because we're going to end this first chapter today. We're going to talk about verses 27 through 30, and I want to give you uh, the best context possible, and the best context possible is what Paul wrote to the Philippians. So um, if you have a Bible and you want to open and follow along with me, do that. I'm going to be just reading Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Pastor Brooks spoke last week about this, uh, this verse in chapter 1, um, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's 121. And he said that if we are to live as though Christ were our all in all, then he must be our all in all. It can't be Christ plus our job or Christ plus our marriage or our family. It can't be Christ plus anything. If we're going to live as Paul recommends here, then we need to live for Christ only. That's it. Just Christ. And if death is going to be gain, then it has to be death secure in the knowledge that we are going to spend eternity with Christ. That's what it means to live for Christ and to die as gain. And then Paul wraps up this section with this word about citizenship. Now, like I said, it doesn't say citizen in this text, and we'll get to that, but you do know, right? You are all aware, you understand that a citizen is somebody who lives in a specific place and obeys the rules and laws of that specific place. This is something that we, we know from experience. It's something we've probably learned about in school. Uh, in most countries, it is the case, not in every, but in most countries, it's the case. If you're born there, you are a citizen there. However, to gain all of the rights and privileges that come with citizenship, you have to obey the laws there. If you are in our country and a citizen in our country, but fail to obey the laws, we will throw you in prison and we'll take away your rights and privileges. So citizenship is about living in a place and also following the rules of that place. And Paul is telling the Philippians here, your citizenship ought to be a heavenly citizenship. That's the one that you ought to be concerned about because that's the one that lasts. That's the important one. That's the one that goes on forever. And it's important to the Philippians because uh, they are a Roman colony. Philippi is a Roman colony established by Roman soldiers just in the same way that England used to establish colonies all over the world when they were expanding their empire Rome did the same, and Philippi is a place established by Roman soldiers where the 
people who live there have Roman citizenship. So even though they are not in Rome, they have the rights and privileges of Roman citizens. And so for the Philippians, citizenship is important. That's an important concept for them. They want to have the rights and privileges associated with citizenship. And Paul is saying, that's great. You should, but you should want the heavenly citizenship more than the earthly citizenship. And this word is good for us too. We all live in a country in which it is important for us to have rights and privileges in accordance with our citizenship because they're good ones. We like the rights and privileges that come with being American citizens. We like the freedom to vote. We like the freedom to assemble. We like to have the freedom to say what we want to say, including preaching the gospel. So we like our rights and privileges as citizens. It's a good word for us, too. We understand being a citizen. It's an important thing. But Paul is going to show us that when we die with Christ and are raised with him, both where we're from and the rules that we follow ought to change. We ought to stop thinking about ourselves as being from America and start thinking about ourselves as being from the kingdom of God if we have died with Christ and been raised with him. And we should stop thinking about putting the rules and laws of our country first and start putting the rules and laws of our Christ first. That's what Paul is going to teach us today. And he's going to say there's some things that you need to pay attention to. So I'm going to ask you to pay attention to the same things. He's going to say there is a sign. There is a way of seeing that you are a citizen Okay, so we'll talk about the, what are the signs of citizenship of, again, the kingdom of heaven, being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. What are those signs? And then there's an effect, right? There is something that will happen as a result of you living as a citizen. Let's look for that as well. And then finally, there are some privileges and also responsibilities that come with being citizens. So we'll talk about that also and try to see if we can understand for our own lives what this means for us to not only have these privileges, but also to bear these responsibilities. You pray with me? God, we praise you, uh, we thank you that you have given us yourself and that we have the opportunity in you to have citizenship uh, in a heavenly home, in an eternal kingdom, Lord, that cannot be shaken or moved, Lord, that, can, uh, that, that cannot be harmed by any enemy. Lord, you are God and you are king and you are everlasting and all of these things mean that you are the best possible home for us. Lord, your home is the best home for us. So I pray that we would see that today. I pray, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would speak through me, that people here would uh, hear your words and not mine, and that they would know what you would have them know from this word. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you have an ESV Bible, which is what we read from here at Grace, then verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1 reads just the way that we read it a minute ago. It says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then it goes on and explains um, what that should look like. But if you have a New Living Translation, or in fact, if you have an uh, ESV Study Bible, you'll see a note at the bottom of the page on the ESV Study Bible that says something about citizenship. And the New Living Translation reads this way, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. So why would some Bibles say, Only let your manner of life be worthy, and some say, Live as citizens? Well, there's a Greek word here that's kind of hard to translate. Um, it only shows up once in the Bible, and it's in this verse. And then there's another form of this word that shows up in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. I'm going to read that to you. Philippians 3, verse 20, says this. It's on the next page. Let me turn the page. Here we go. It says, Our citizenship, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul 
returns to this idea of citizenship later in Philippians. And so some commentators say, oh, well, when we see the other form of that Greek word earlier, then we should clearly make it like the New Living Translation and, and include that word in here. And some say, yeah, maybe not. That's maybe confusing at this point. So all that to say, right, it's not very clear in the Greek. But it is clear to us, right, that this concept of citizenship is going to be important later in Philippians. So we're going to introduce it now, and we're going to talk about it again later. Um, and we're going to run with this idea that's presented clearly in the New Living Translation that we must live as citizens of heaven. That when Paul, uh, when the English translation says, let your manner of life be worthy, that this is the deeper concept we're trying to get at. What does it mean to have a manner of life that's worthy? Well, it means to live as a good citizen of heaven. That's what it means. So what does it look like? What is the sign of that? If I'm going to say live as a good citizen of heaven, um, what would that look like? Well, it's going to look like conducting yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel so that your life provides evidence of um, what you believe. So what you say, what you do, how you act, all of that is providing evidence of your belief. If you go out from this place today, if you go out to lunch, if you go shopping, right, even if you just go home, you're going to act, you're going to speak, you're going to think, you're going to continue to move and have presence in this world. What you do will demonstrate what you believe. Now, you might say you believe one thing, but what you do will demonstrate what you actually believe, right? If you say, I'm not a football fan, I don't really care, but you woke up depressed this morning, <laughs> right? Because you were watching a game last night, maybe your team didn't win the last second, Maybe you are actually a football fan, right? What you do is a demonstration of what you believe. And Paul is saying what you do, how you act, how you speak, that's a demonstration of your citizenship. That's the sign. So much so, he says, that it should be evident to those who see your lives. So somebody who's present in your life, the person that you interact with today, right? If you go out to eat after church today, the people you interact with at the restaurant, they're going to see you and they're going to be able to say things about your belief based on what they observe. But also, Paul says, just about people hearing from you about you. So he said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come and see you again. Paul is writing to the Philippians from prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to go see them, but he says... The manner of your life ought to be such that even if I only hear about it, it should be evident to me that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So what are the specific actions? What are the things that we should be doing and saying? What are the things that would demonstrate that we're citizens? He gives us some characteristics, like standing together with other believers in the same purpose, the same power of the same Holy Spirit fighting with other believers for the sake of the gospel, not just fighting with other believers. How many of you have fought with other believers before? Right? That's different than fighting with them for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what he says is a demonstration of, a sign of our citizenship in heaven. So if you are working with other Christians for uh, the promotion of the gospel, if together you are sharing in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what God has called you to accomplish, that's going to be a sign to people that you're a citizen of heaven, that you care about the laws and rules, right, the kingdom of God as he has established it. If you're just fighting with each other, that will be a sign of something else. So if you fight alongside of each other for the kingdom, that will be a sign of your citizenship. And there'll, there'll be some impact, Right? Um, Philippians 127, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, live as citizens, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
In verse 28, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. You will have opponents. This is an impact. It's an effect of living as a citizen. People will not want you to represent the kingdom of God, and so they will be opposed to you. So you will have opponents, but don't be frightened by them. That lack of fear, when it says this is, it's talking about that lack of fear. This is a clear sign to them, your opponents, of their destruction. When you don't have any fear, even though you are opposed in your presentation of the gospel, that is a sign to your opponents of their destruction and also of your salvation, which is a gift from God. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about who our opponents are a minute. Our opponents are people who reject God. And of course, right, that's clear to us. If we are for the gospel, if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and we are preaching and we are sharing the gospel and we're trying to demonstrate the gospel, of course, people who reject God and verbally attack him and work against him are going to be our opponents. And when most of you think about opponents to the gospel, this is the kind of thing that you're thinking about. Right? You're thinking about somebody who hears that you have a Christian faith and they speak out against it. They say things like, God doesn't exist, or God is evil, or Jesus is a lie. Right? They are directly opposing uh, the scripture, they're directly opposing the truth. That's what you think of as an opponent. But that's not the only kind of opponent we face. We also uh, face people who will reject God verbally. Right? They'll say God doesn't exist, but then they'll claim every good thing that God gives us as their own. They'll say people are basically good and people do good things, um, but they can't explain sin and they can't provide justice. And so ultimately these people are opponents. Not opponents necessarily in the same active sense as the first group, right? but they're not speaking the truth. And then there are another class of people, folks who will profess to believe in God, but then they're going to prove otherwise with their actions. Some of these are Christian leaders. Some of these are men and women who have risen up in the church and their witness has been consistent for so many years and then we find out for that same number of years they were living a lie. And those people are our opponents in the gospel, right? They are working against us because they are seeking themselves. They are seeking a country that is not God's. They are not citizens of heaven. So those are our opponents, and I'm sure that there are others as well, but that's more than enough. Right? When Paul and Silas come into Philippi, we, we talked about this um, when we introduced this series. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they come to Philippi. They are preaching the gospel. Um, they cast a demon out of a young girl, and they get thrown in prison. And they have physical opponents. Right? They have people who are physically restricting them, putting them in prison. And that is something that Paul says not to be frightened about. He's not talking about in general when people don't like your ideas. He's saying when you have opponents who oppress and or push against your message up to and including throwing you in prison, don't be afraid. Do you guys know what Paul and Silas did when they were thrown in prison? Does anybody know that story from Acts chapter 16? They whispered. What do they do? They sang. That is a sign of not being afraid, right? Either you are stupid and foolish, or you are not afraid if you are able to sing in prison. And Paul and Silas were able to sing because they weren't afraid, because they knew the truth. Right? We're going to talk about, just, just in a second here, why it is we shouldn't be afraid. But remember right, that it's going to be a sign to those people who oppose you of their destruction and of your salvation. So how are we to not live with fear? How do we escape that? First and foremost, we have to remember that if we are a citizen of heaven... If we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this, 
right? If you don't know it, if you haven't heard it, this is it. If you are a sinner and all of us sin, all of us struggle with evil. If you are a sinner, all you have to do to have eternal salvation is to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Repent of your sin, stop sinning, and trust that he will enable you to keep not sinning and live for him. And he saves you. That's it. That's the gospel. And if you believe that, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, then nobody is actually opposing you anymore. They're opposing Christ. That is the number one reason and way that we live without fear when we are faced with oppression. Because people will oppose us. We will have opponents in our work as Christian citizens. People will want to stop what we're doing, sometimes directly, actively. Nobody here has been thrown in prison, I don't think. But some of you may have been, right? Some of you may have been opposed in your faith. And Paul says, even up to including being thrown in prison, don't fear, because they're not opposed to you. They're actually opposed to Jesus. And Jesus already won the battle. Jesus already died, already rose again. He is alive. Amen? Amen, but stronger this time. Ready? Amen? Amen. 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 There we go. He is alive. So he has won. And we don't have to fear because he is the king. Not just the king of our lives, but the king of the universe, right? When we say we're citizens of heaven, right? This is better than this country. With all of the freedoms that this country affords, it is so much better to be a citizen of heaven because the king of the universe is king there. No matter who we put in office, here, they will never be king of the universe. But Jesus is our king. He is the king of the universe. He is Lord. And so if they are opposed to us, right, we need to not fear because they're actually opposed to him and he has already won. Our lack of fear is also a sign of our salvation. It's a reminder of what we have in Christ. If you have a Bible and want to turn with me, I'm going to go to Romans here. It says Romans chapter 8. I'll read a few more verses than uh, 38 and 39 there. I'll start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, right? If God is our king, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God chose us. We didn't choose him. While we are yet sinners, he dies for us and loves us. So, who's going to bring any charge against us? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a sign of our salvation when we don't have fear. When we are not afraid of the party that's in office, when we are not afraid of the, the direction our country is going or the virus that is rampant in the world, when we're not afraid, doesn't mean we have to be stupid, but we don't have to be afraid 
because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And if we are citizens of heaven, that is the only thing that matters, that we have the love of Christ. And we have it completely in him, 100% guaranteed. It cannot go away if he holds our hand, if he holds us. And he does if we have accepted him as our savior. So that is a sign. Don't fear because it's a sign of your salvation. It's also a sign of their condemnation. Um, Paul says that our lack of fear is a sign of the destruction of God's opponents. In John chapter 16, I'm going to turn over there too. Jesus is explaining to the disciples what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit is going to do this. Um, John chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 8. And when he comes, this is the Holy Spirit Jesus is talking about. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When you don't have fear in the face of opposition, the people who witness that, the people who see that you don't have fear, they don't know what to do with that. They understand that the natural reaction to opposition is fear. When Paul and Silas were thrown in prison and they sang, and then an earthquake earthquake came, right, and it destroyed uh, the prison gates and doors and and knocked off their chains and they're able to go away, the prison uh, keeper, right, the, the warden of the prison is fearful for his own life because he thinks that a great thing has just happened and these people are going to escape and his life will be forfeit because the prisoners he was put in charge of have escaped. And they have to tell him, don't, don't worry, don't be afraid, we're here. But that's a natural response. When you see people in a situation where they should be afraid, where they should be deathly afraid, their lives are at stake, they're in prison and they're singing, that makes you wonder what you're doing with your own life. Why is it that they have that joy? Why is it that they are so confident in the face of opposition? And it is a sign because of the Holy Spirit that they are sinners. It doesn't mean that you have to go and show them. You don't have to wave your joy in front of their face and say, be afraid, right? The Holy Spirit's going to do that. He is going to make them aware of their own sin because of your joy. So do not fear, right? Live as a citizen who does not fear because God's going to use it to convict and to bring others to himself. That's what happens with the jailer. He is brought to Christ. He and his whole household accept Jesus. So that's one of the things that God is going to do with this. So here's the effect. You, you show up, right? You live as a citizen. Your life is clearly demonstrating the effects of the gospel. People are going to be convicted. You are going to have confidence about your own salvation. And then also you're going to get this special responsibility, which is suffering. Doesn't that sound great? Aren't you glad I saved this one for the end? Paul did too. I'm just following the scripture. Here's what the scripture says in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you a grant, a gift, right? Here is the thing that I am giving to you. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Great, that sounds good. God gave us the ability to believe in him. Wonderful. That you should believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's part of the gift. That sounds like a terrible gift, right? Who wants to suffer? Who's glad that we have the gift of suffering? Nobody's glad that we have the gift of suffering. What is Paul talking about? Why are we given the gift of suffering? Paul says, you're going to be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now that is very clearly being thrown in prison. Paul was thrown in prison both in Philippi and then again later. 
Okay, so this is clearly what Paul is talking about, but also he's just talking about, in general, having people oppose you in your presentation of the gospel. So you are going to be engaged in this in the same way that I have. And if you're a Christian citizen, you should not be frightened. You should recognize that this is the privilege and the responsibility that you bear as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that you get to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. Why? Here's a purpose. Here's two purposes, actually. Number one, to advance the gospel, to spread the good news. Everywhere Paul goes with his companions, with Silas and Timothy and others, they're suffering all the time. They're suffering from hunger, uh, from beating, from being shipwrecked, uh, things that they can control in some, to some degree and things that they can't. They're thrown in prison. They're thrown in chains. They're constantly suffering. And what's happening? They're spreading the good news and more and more people are coming to Christ. We read about this in chapter 1 of Philippians as I was reading for context. Paul says, um, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Verse 12, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. His suffering leads to more people knowing Jesus. That's a purpose for his suffering. That's part of why God gives us this gift, so that others will be drawn to him. You might think, well, that's a terrible way to draw other people to yourself, by making them suffer. But here's the thing. It's not just that. It's also making us more like him. We are being made in the image and likeness of our Savior when we suffer in the same way that he did. Because that's true, right? That Christ also suffered. You say, well, yeah, Christ suffered, but why didn't he just make us so he didn't have to suffer? Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be a better God who could make us so we didn't have to suffer? Read the Bible. We were made so that we didn't have to suffer. Genesis 1. We were without sin. We did not have to suffer, and we chose it. That was our choice. You say, well, I don't like that narrative. I don't like that take on Scripture. I don't believe that's the truth. That's what the Bible says. But let's say you don't like it. Couldn't a good God have figured out a way to make it so that we didn't have to suffer? Couldn't he have done that? Maybe. Maybe he could have. I don't know. But I do know that he was not content to just ask us to suffer. He showed us what that looked like and did it himself, even to the point of death. So here's what scripture tells us about suffering, because it's not just Paul here in this one verse saying, hey, this is a grant to you. You should do this. You should suffer in this way. There's more going on here. You guys are going to be familiar with these verses. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you suffer in many different ways. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you guys are athletes, you know that this is a way that athletes talk to themselves about training, right? You have to struggle. You have to work through difficulty in order to progress. And that when you struggle, right, when you, when you deal with difficult things and you continue to deal, you continue to push, that's going to make you steadfast. And that steadfastness is going to make you more perfect, more complete as an athlete. And Paul uh, in, in Philippians, in James here, and then Paul again in Romans, is saying the same thing about our spiritual walk, that God uses this suffering, not just to make us suffer, but he uses it so that we can be more like him. Romans 5, through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace, his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice 
in the hope of the glory of God. This is what it means to be a citizen of heaven, to rejoice in the hope of a kingdom yet to come in its fullness. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we are suffering and we don't know why and we don't know where it's coming from and we don't know what to do with it, we need to remember this. This is what God has given us as citizens of his kingdom. He's given us this word to remind us that it's not for no purpose. We're going to read later in Philippians that this is going to give us the very mind and attitude of Christ Jesus who didn't consider godhood equality. Uh, equality with God had something to be grasped, but he took on the nature of a servant. And that can be true for us too, that we can take on the nature of a servant who suffers for the sake of the gospel, and this is what can happen. We can have God's Holy Spirit poured into us, strengthening us, filling us, giving us everything that we need. I say, I don't know if that's enough. And you won't until you go through it. It's true, you will not. My sister found out this week that she has a rare and aggressive form of cancer, my younger sister. My younger sister with four children, my younger sister who has already had marital strife, who has already had problems uh, with the health of her children and financial problems and many other issues, many other sufferings, now found out that she has a rare and aggressive form of cancer. Doesn't even know what the treatment plan looks like yet, just found out this last Friday. There is no good reason for that except for sin. You say, but why did God have to give it to her? I don't know why God had to give it to her, but I know what he's going to do with it because he's told us that he is going to use her lack of fear and she is not afraid. She, she called me and she, she said, said, I have a peace about this. I don't know why I shouldn't, but I do. I have a peace about this. And he's going to use that lack of fear to bring other people to himself and to convict people of sin. And he's going to produce character in her. He's going to make her more like himself through this. And he might ultimately take her life. That's a possibility. And that is going to be serious suffering if he does that. For her kids, for me, for our whole family. And the only way that I can offer hope to her or to anyone else in that is to say, if you are a citizen of heaven, that's not the end. This is only the beginning. We're going to take communion today. Um, if you did not get one of these when you came in, could you raise your hand? We have ushers and they can bring you one. The, uh, the musicians are going to come back up and we're going to sing before we take communion. But I want you to think about this. Jesus does not ask us to do things that he does not himself do. He says it has been granted to us to suffer. And what does he do with his life but suffer for our sake and to show us what it looks like to draw closer to the Heavenly Father?